Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 40 of the podcast, the topic is Israel meets New England on Industry 4.0. This is a special episode where we tune into a webinar on Industry 4.0 put on jointly by AmHub New England and the Israeli Economic Mission to North America. Our guests are Michael Tomasi, co-chairman of the MA Advanced Manufacturing Collaborative and CEO and owner of AccuRounds, Mark Goldfarb, CEO and co-founder of Sixth of Space, and Carl B. March, director of Industry 4.0 at Stanley Black & Decker. With 100 plus sites, chosen sites, we're given a bit more license. Michael Zolotov, CTO and co-founder of Razor Lab. The most frequent use, the use case that we get from our clients are prevention of future downtime. Lior Zadikario, Chief Revenue Officer of Visual Factories. Natan Linder, CEO and co-founder of Tulip. Anat Katz, Minister of Trade Affairs at the Consulate General of New York for Israel. And Karen Chen, Head of Sectors, Automotive and Smart Mobility, Industry 4.0 at the Israel Export Institute. In this conversation, we talk about Industry 4.0 with top Israeli startups and advanced manufacturers from New England, notably the daunting challenges in manufacturing, the ever-changing context, the trailblazing tech solutions, integrating it all, and what do factory managers need to know, and last but not least, partnering. Augmented is a podcast for industry leaders and operators, hosted by futurist Trun Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG.works, the industrial upskilling community launched World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented. The Industry 4.0 Podcast, Industrial Conversations That Matter. Here is Carl B. March from Stanley Black & Decker. We need to take an ecosystem approach. So even though Stanley Black & Decker uh, might be considered uh, a large company, we recognize that um, for us to really understand and feel the benefit throughout our supply chain and throughout all of, all of our connections, we need to make sure that we enable others to do so. So that's the approach that we're taking right now, um, which is um, quite exciting. We have a lot of um, enthuse, enthusiastic um, partners, a lot, a lot of enthusiastic um, manufacturers who want to be a part of this. And um, we're, we're starting this off in New England. Great. That's uh, super exciting. I'm now going to go to three uh, enormously uh, fascinating founders and, uh, and uh, leaders in Israeli startups. And I talked to each of them on, on a podcast and many of the listeners and viewers will, will know that. Let's start with uh, Mark Goldfarb of Sixth D of Space or Sixth of Space. Uh, why are you here, Mark? And uh, you are a bit of a I guess, a Israeli transplant because you lived in New York for a, bu a bunch of years. Why are you in Israel? Why are you back? Well, why am I in Israel? I'm not going to get into a conversation. That's, uh, I guess, idealism, religion. Uh, we'll skip that for right now. Um, but I love living in Israel and I love New York and uh, Boston is not that far away. So I love Boston also. I've been there many times. Uh, we're here. My startup has developed a sensor for that could be used for tracking, for logistics and safety in a warehouse and a factory environment. And uh, we're looking to spread new markets. And Boston is a logical choice. The whole New England is a logical choice. Wonderful. Uh, thanks, Mark. Lior, uh, Lior Zodicario uh, from Visual Factories. You are more of a software guy turning into a manufacturing guy. This is, I guess, the story of many of us, Natan. I guess, is a, perhaps an example of the same thing. Why are you here, Lior? What, what, what's going on from your perspective? We'll get into the topic in one second, but just one little statement of why you're in New England right now, uh, virtually, of course. My background is mostly uh, software. I've been telecommunication and software and uh, a little bit of IoT as well. But over the last few years, what I've been looking at is uh, trying to look into the future and look at what are, the most, what are going to be the most interesting industries. 
And, uh, you know, I did it like uh, three, four years ago and manufacturing was one of the top ones. I think there's a lot of interesting things which are happening in that uh, space. And I think it ties into, uh, into what software technology can bring into the world of manufacturing. And this is what I wanted to focus on. So for the last uh, couple of years, I've been involved, a little more than that, uh, involved with, uh, with manufacturing and, uh, and IoT. That's very cool, Lior. And for those of you who follow the Augmented podcast, of course, will know that Lior was a guest, uh, you know, as late as yesterday with a with a an episode recorded yesterday, which for me is new. I mean, it's not that I'm all that slow, but you know, usually podcasts aren't. They are either live or not live, and when they're not live, they're not news. But this was news. Lior's news. Michael Zolotov. Let's talk about Razor Labs. What you know? What you are virtually here as well. Um, you have a very pecky spin. On, on the manufacturing world. Uh, give us a sense of uh, what you're here to do, Michael Zolotov. Thank you, Tron, and it's a pleasure being here with uh, everyone. So essentially what we do is uh, we come from a very uh, extensive background in uh, deep learning, which is you know the, the cutting edge of AI research today. And essentially what we do is we connect to uh, very complex machines in the, field of, in the fields of manufacturing, natural resources and utilities. And we connect to the thousands of, of tags, thousands of sensors that already accumulate seeds of information for our clients and give them very precise business value in the fields of malfunction prediction, process quality, uh, uh, defects prediction, and obviously optimization, whether it's throughput maximization, energy efficiency, pollution, and so on. Daunting challenges in manufacturing. I'm going to just throw out something and feel free to agree, disagree. You know, hopefully you don't all agree. Creating physical products in factories that are created in 1800 is like almost impossible task. What do you say, Mark Goldfarb? <laughs> so what I'm saying is these factories are very old and they are not changed for, okay. you know, a hundred years. So these are factory floors. They're, you know, they are full of all kinds of stuff and you guys have to come in there with advanced technology. How are we handling that? You know, we can uh, get to that in a second, but you, you, throw in some sensors, so, yes. but they have no, to be so retrofitted, it, right? Our sensors would have to have, in those cases, uh, lights to be retrofitted, uh, LED lights put in. It's not a big project, but there is a project. There'll be some retrofitting, but it can work with the existing infrastructure, just adding the lights, as long as there's electricity in the site. Perfect. Leo, what are you up to when it comes to these factories? Do you agree with me? Are factories changing? Are they, is it going to take a while to change? Uh, you know, what's the situation with factories? The well, I think goes. 1800 is a little bit going back, but I think in general, uh, you know, it's, it's a challenge. And, and anytime that we have a challenge, I want to turn things around and say, okay, how do we meet the, this challenge? I mean, challenge for our customers, <laughs> we want to make sure that they're able to actually meet that challenge. And what we do is try to uh, build an IoT sensor that will, or an IoT device that will connect to any machine. So, uh, you know, obviously there needs to be some kind of an interaction with a machine, but, you know, if a machine has, uh, has uh, uh, you know, any kind of electricity or any kind of a signal, we can capture that and make sense out of that based on uh, uh, what we do with our software. Uh, all right. So, Michael Zolotov, you were the first AI company to register to list on the Israeli stock exchange. Uh, you must have an answer to this uh, old versus new. What do you guys do? Throw it all out? <laughs> no, no. Actually, the exact opposite of that. Uh, one of the key things that deep learning brings or AI, AI brings to the table is the ability to leverage the existing sensors that are already there. Uh, most of these sensors uh, were put by the clients, not even the OEMs of the machines, and we actually leverage the existing sensors. Uh, my take on your question is that, um, that the machines today are not as sophisticated as they could be, and they don't operate as op in an optimized way as they could have been, and it hurts the OE which is the, the thing that everyone wants to maximize. And that's, I think, the place to bring newer technologies to, to optimize the processes. Michael Tomasi, you actually have a shop floor. You own one and you produce as a contract manufacturer for others. So what's the situation in New England? Are, are we an old or a new factory or a mix? Or, and where's it heading? Well, if you're old, you're not around. Uh, you need to progress. And we've been investing in technology here. We provide contract precision machining services for medical defense, robotics, we're making parts for vaccine machines right now. So whether it's CNC equipment, whether it's machine monitoring, whether it's 3D printing, big data analysis, 
you need to compete. And in order to survive, if you're not investing in these new technologies, partnering with companies locally and around the world, then you're not going to be around tomorrow. Great. So I'm going to give Nathan the last word, which means stay tuned because I'm now going to go to Carl March. So Carl, uh, Stanley Black & Decker, you have a bunch of sites, I think uh, hundreds, uh, certainly many. Um, and then you have one particular very exciting site in Hartford that you custom built out and you call it something fascinating that I'm forgetting right now, but it is some sort of smart <laughs> factory. Why did you do that? Well, um, first of all, I start with the last part. Um, manufacturing, that's what we call our, um, our site in Hartford, um, which is where we have our innovation space. We also have an opportunity to put a bunch of partner solutions um, there as well, where we're able to um, demonstrate what Industry 4.0 is um, to our individual um, sites as well as um, externally. But um, to answer your question regarding um, a mix of old and new, we definitely have a mix of old and new. Um, and we've had um, that difficult challenge that we're starting to overcome with um, being able to retrofit sensors, um, but also make a common architecture um, that we're able to work from um, overall. So it's definitely a challenge, but um, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's one that can be overcome. Perfect. Now, Tan, I have a sense that you see it somewhat differently, although let's uh, unbundle it a little bit because you're not so focused, even though you were a two-time tech founder, you know, founder and you come from MIT and everything, you'd expect you to be talking up and down technology, but you talk about humans. Yeah, I talk a lot about humans and uh, actually the, you know, what, what I've been focused my entire career is like how, you know, interfaces enable uh, people to use technology because, you know, when you think about manufacturing, uh, there are the manufacturing technologies per se. So like if you think about if you're making a silicon wafer, like there's a semiconductor mach lithography machine, that's the manufacturing technology. You cannot make that product without machines and sensors and computers. But, you know, uh, humans are not going away from manufacturing. There's actually overwhelming number of humans that are missing in manufacturing. There's all sorts of like good, uh, uh, you know, a little piece of information, you know, that contextualizes it. You know, like the famous one is like about 300 hands uh, are uh, involved in like putting together uh, products like an iPhone or an iPad, for example. So uh, the, the, the point and, and then someone made a comment here about the 1800s. And so I, I think Certainly the spaces don't look like 1800s, but you know, we have some customers in the luxury goods space, for example, that you go to their spaces where they put like a luxury uh, watch piece, for example, and it, it doesn't look that different. And so the trick is like, how do you uh, enable the people on shop floors to, to actually uh, survive and be productive for their organization uh, in a world that is fundamentally driven by software? It doesn't matter if the software is like to talk to sensors or do AI or you know, dish out workflows or what have you. And that that's the tension. And that's like where I think a lot of our industry is kind of uh, focused and working on, uh, in fact, together, uh, you know, build a new stack uh, to, to power this, uh, you know, this, this uh, you know, next, whatever you want to call it, the next, uh, the next gen manufacturing systems that um, uh, need to uh, go there. And the last point I'll make is, Technology is here. There's no doubt. Clouds and AI, what, what, whatever else you want to put in that bucket. At least 50% of the battle is change management, which is, again, goes to humans. Michael Tomasi, what is the absolute biggest daunting challenge in manufacturing from your point of view? I'm going to pick right up from Natan's comment. It's people. It's finding the talent and getting them trained up to embrace these new technologies that are needed to remain competitive in the future. And Michael, let me follow up with that. What What is the strategy to then solve that problem, especially in, in Massachusetts? What What are we doing about it? Well, I'll tell you, there's no. this is the most exciting time in my 35-plus year career in manufacturing. There is so much excitement. Work is coming back to our country. Um, we need to promote what we do. We are not dark, dirty, and dangerous anymore. We are safe, smart, and sustainable. And we need to get that message across to our people in our state, in our country, and globally. Perfect. Mark Goldfarb, what, what, what do you see from 6th uh, DO Spaces side? I mean, sure. Uh, I think it's what we're focusing on, uh, logistics and safety. So I agree with Michael, that's people. And I would specifically focus on the logistics and the safety aspect, uh, how to maneuver everything and how to keep them safe. Michael Zolotov, Razor Labs, what do, what do you think? 
I would choose uh, change management and I would choose it in the eyes of AI, where as again, as um, Nathan said, I really can relate to that. Eventually, our goal is not to replace people, is to enhance people, to give them the creative choice that they need to make as a part of their jobs. And putting AI as a part of the process, that's a very challenging task and change management is critical. Interesting. Enhancing people, augmentation. This is going to be a big topic as we move ahead. Uh, Leo, what's, what's your take on the biggest daunting challenge? I think there's uh, two challenges. I think one is the, the democratization of uh, manufacturing. So making sure that everyone is on board. And the second thing is for manufacturers to realize that technology is strategy. That whatever, they, whatever decisions they make around technology is really a strategic decision for the company. It's a great point because a lot of times we don't get past either talking about the technology or talking about workforce challenges, but we forget to talk, I guess, about the not just the organizational, but the structural challenges. Uh, uh, Carl from Stanley Black & Decker, what do you think is the absolute biggest challenge? I mean, you're a big company. There must be more than one challenge. Uh, certainly. Um, and I do echo Lior's comments around the strategy um, because that's one of the big issues um, facing most manufacturers in trying to get into Industry 4.0, for example. But um, outside of that, I'd say value chain. Um, so being able to understand what's happening across the value chain and connecting those elements from um, supply chain resiliency all the way to um, what's happening in your customer base. Um, that's, that's a challenging um, thing at the moment, being flexible and being able to adapt to um, different issues that are arising in different nodes along the value chain. Not what is your one big okay. challenge? For me, like, I, I kind of listed the problems, but I want to kind of focus on the, one of the core tenets of solutions, which is build a community because we live in a network economy and what i mean by that like pick any topic whether it's hr finance e-commerce all these professionals are on the internet sharing information not to mention software engineers not to mention you know all sorts of other designers uh, have communities where is that for operations and manufacturing that that is that is to me one of the key things that are challenging our industry from moving at the speed of you know what open source gave to uh, you know, the way we design uh, at scale uh, enterprise systems today. So for me, that's the biggest challenge. Perfect. So let's pick up on this community challenge. And I want to do it through segment two, which is on this ever-changing context. Uh, uh, but I first want to go detour because not only are we trying to create community potentially uh, following Natan, and I want everyone's opinion on that, of course, but let's just talk about the elephant in the room. COVID-19 has, has ravaged the world, to be very honest. Uh, and there are all kinds of views on, on it, and you can spin it any way you want. But essentially, it, it's been a tragedy. Uh, but somewhat, um, the rosy part of the tragedy was that there was internet and there was some technology, even in factories. And uh, more than that, I guess I wanted to kick this off with Michael. Some of the resiliency has, has surprised a lot of us, even those of us who were watching and some of the things that actually we're able to, we were able to do during COVID. Can you please address some of the accomplishments in Massachusetts uh, and New England during COVID? Sure. We uh, spun out right in, right in March when COVID hit the Massachusetts uh, Manufacturing Emergency Response Team. And we basically got our research institutions together with companies ready to pivot to make PPE. And they were able to fast track development and production from months into days and weeks. Uh, there was one company, nine months to make, to develop a gown. They, they turned it around in three weeks, which is amazing. We produced over 15 million uh, pieces of PPE in the state in the last 12 to 15 months. Uh, what it did was shine a light on the tremendous ecosystem and what can happen when you have that collaboration, like Natan mentioned, and you have people interacting at warp speed. That is extremely exciting because what you're talking about is not just collaboration, but it is this warp speed. But what I'm interested in as my follow-up to this, and I'm going to challenge each of you, is this, how do we sustain this warp speed? So I, I want you guys to comment on COVID-19 progress because, you know, it's, it's just uh, let's not talk about the, all of the other stuff. Let's talk about what we can use it for and what you think is the opportunity now to sustain the gains that have been 
accomplished during COVID. I'm going to go straight to Mark because he's on the top of my screen right now. Uh, sure. Um, to me, it was learning to work remotely. Um, and I think that's something that we can sustain. And uh, you don't always have to travel. You don't always have to be there. Uh, you can do things remotely on Zoom or otherwise. Um, uh, and it took a lot to train everybody to work that way. Um, but I think that's something we came out of it with, and it's something that's going to last. Leo, what, what do you think? Uh, so from uh, a virtual fa visual factories point of view? Well, I think that you know, remote access to factories is, uh, has been key to dealing with this kind of uh, 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 challenge. But also, I think in general, looking at the whole, you know, the whole uh, economy, digital transformation has been receiving just like a, a great big kick out of uh, out of uh, COVID. So one of the upsides of COVID is that we've learned to do things remotely. We've learned to do things more efficiently in a way. Michael, at Razor Labs, uh, a lot of what you do is machine monitoring, which uh, you share with, I think, ma many of the startups here have machine monitoring as part of what they're up to. Uh, what are some of your observations on, on, on the ability to really leapfrog for COVID? So I, I want to really relate to what Lior just said. Uh, uh, suddenly, many sites were just inaccessible and were only remotely operated. And we saw during COVID uh, as a really supreme surge in demand for AI-driven automation and, as you said, monitoring where, you know, the analogy is if really in the past you needed uh, 100 people with shovels uh, building the foundation of a building, when you present the insights to the people, uh, you can now with one tractor perform the same task. So AI driving automation and optimization and remote monitoring, that's something that we saw a high increase and we think it's a sustainable increase in demand. Carl, how do you see it from Stanley's side? You 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 run analytics on the industry 4.0 for the for the company. Yeah, I totally agree with on the previous comments. And what I look to as a silver lining in all of this, um, the pandemic and all, um, is that there is no more pull for, frankly, technologies that were there before. Right. Um, so all of these technologies and, and solutions, they were already there before the pandemic. But now I think it has highlighted um, the need for having these solutions in place. And I believe that going forward, um, the mindset has shifted somewhat um, in most of our sites, in most of our um, companies. Um, so not just Stanley Black and Decker um, to pull on these types of solutions. Here's Natan Linder. I think everybody covered all the key points. Yes, we need this remote work and we, we learn how to be resilient, all that. And that's really important. And I'm not, uh, I'm not underestimating that. Uh, but I think what really COVID did is it showed us like the maturity of technology uh, and that there is another way to do things. So, you know, I've seen teams kind of take, you know, we, we had some work with uh, some med device companies, you know, that they were springing up like the ventilator, uh, you know, build, you know, quickly build ventilators like early in the pandemic. And suddenly you see that, you know, using uh, cloud-based systems, uh, all sorts of online CAD systems like Tulip, you know, solutions, uh, you know, that go into the shop floor, you can take and ramp up a production line in order of a couple weeks, soup to nuts, including like the design of, of this stuff, including like the prototyping, including emergency uh, regulatory approvals, all that. And so, it's really tough to unknow what happened and think that product development doesn't need to change as a result. So, so I leave it there, but it's just like, for me, that's one of the, you know, if we needed a, it's it, for the, you know, the most tragic reason that, that ushered it, but it's really like anybody's doing product development, you know, NPIs like in the pre-COVID sort of timelines, world tools are, you know, basically dead in the water, you know? And, and COVID just gave us the proof. So I, I hopefully, Tron, you approve of this interruption. And I no, no, not an interruption. I perfect. Uh, so I was just going to drive to this question, which I didn't want to start with, but it, it's sort of like there's a two-sided coin to to this uh, response to COVID from the government side. So as many of you uh, may be aware of, yesterday the U.S. Senate uh, sent a, a bill to the floor that included 250 billion dollars, essentially for innovation and competition. However, so that sounds like fantastic news, right? But there is also, as you may be aware, a nationalistic angle to a lot of the things that happen in manufacturing because it has to do with critical infrastructure. There are a lot of 
complexities here. Um, and there's a lot of country games being played. So uh, without getting into diplomacy and creating uh, any kind of uh, you know international scandal, can we uh, agree on how to deal with this in a rational way from uh, the tech producer's point of view? So you are all essentially suppliers and we're trying here to develop partnerships. And we haven't talked so much about international supply chains. But one of the reasons I asked about COVID is that there's this enormous potential to leapfrog but there also was some weaknesses in this supply chain that uh, I think many nation states are are kind of grabbing onto. They are, of course, investing in duplication of supply chains. But short term, it could also lead to a little bit difficult environment for startups to show up in New England or uh, New England startups to export other places. Does anybody want to pick that up? I'm going to take uh, Carl up on it first, just because you know he represents the biggest company. Um, so from Stanley's point of view, how are you guys going to handle this uh, challenge of, uh, it, you know, a continued globalization, but a little bit more of a careful globalization? And these are my words. You feel free to disagree. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, and not only um, so if, we, if you mentioned the pandemic earlier, but we also had other other moves that, and, and headwinds that have affected manufacturing over the past couple of years. Um, that has forced, um, you know, certain changes, um, particularly within our company around localization. Um, so in, in spite of having globalized, um, opportunities, um, with, with, um, with our factory network throughout the world, um, you know, our move has been to localize more, more and more of our supply chain so that we, um, we also, um, make where, make where we sell really. And we also build components where we make. Um, so, um, that, that has been a strategy that has been in the making and quite, um, quite, uh, public, um, over the past couple of years. But again, this past year, um, did force our hand a little bit, um, to do, do that in a more accelerated way. So the way I'm going to do this now is I'm going to go to Michael Tomasi to give some advice before the three Israeli startups talk about how they're going to enter New England, because my guess is how a startup wanted to enter New England is going to have to change because of COVID and some other trends that Carl was just talking about. So Michael Tomasi, you represent the ecosystem in the region, but you also have a startup in the region. Uh, from your point of view, what is the absolute best advice for any foreign supplier, small or large, to work in this new uh, American version of globalization post-COVID? I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback first on Carl's comment because I do think there's been a trend for co-location, and that's important. But it is a global economy. So, getting to getting to your question, Tron, um, in the state of Massachusetts, and every state has an MEP. And for companies to connect with the Mass MEP, who has a tremendous network with their the, the supply chain in their, in each state, they can learn where best to go. Whether they're looking for manufacturing, design, innovation, whatever it might be, to partner with companies. So, you know, the AMC, of course, is another resource as well. And, and CAM at Mass Tech, but we have a lot of places in the state to go to to learn and to integrate and to network and collaborate. Perfect. All right, so we're going to do a quick turn. Th three startups, uh, at least, maybe Natan wants to chime in. Uh, let's go to Michael Zolchov first. So you, you you're here for a reason. We talked about it. You you obviously want to get clients in New England. You want them to be big and uh, and you know enormous and give you a footprint. But maybe you need a footprint first. What's your take? <laughs> so, John, you actually took the words out of my mouth. One of the key things that we understood early on is that having boots on the ground is key for, uh, for engagement with clients. Because clients see or, or manufacturers see AI as a journey that they want a partner to, to do together with. And, uh, you know, when we started in Australia, one of the first things that we've done is establish a branch uh, there and uh, we're uh, now in the process of exactly localizing our branch in the U.S., uh, trying to find the exact uh, right location for that. Because eventually we treat our clients not as clients but as partners for this journey. We start with a very quick uh, one, two month tops POC where they already see business value, and because the expansion is so dramatic, I mean we're thinking about thousands and thousands of, ye of, uh, of hours every year of lost throughput that we can save. It's, it's a journey that we do together with them. So having these boots on the ground is, is key for us. 
If you guys want the story of how Razor Labs got to collaborate so much with Australia, you're going to have to listen to my podcast because we don't have time to cover it. But it was a fascinating story about how their first big client, you know, ended up with, uh, you know, being a massive Australian expansion in Perth. Uh, Lior, how do you see this from from your point of view? What, what what's your thought on the kind of dom- domiciling in New England and and how you really want to approach this region and 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 America? I think it goes back into the issue of the ecosystem. So we're looking for partners to work with, although we are looking to expand, you know, to get our boots on the ground as well in, in North America. And uh, but I think, like in general, if you ask the question in light of COVID. I think that COVID really turned into uh, uh, sort of highlighted a few issues which are very important around supply chain. However, I think on the other hand, it really uh, highlighted the issue around the ability to do things remotely uh, and and uh, ability to do uh, things like uh, open source internationalization. Uh, so I think that we need to deal with these two uh, sort of conflicting currents. So both looking for an ecosystem which is local but also expanding globally as far as the resources that you're able to leverage. So it's actually both. Got it. Mark, uh, how about 6D of space? Is New England your 7D? Um, it's not a 7D, but it's definitely a target location. Uh, I look at this as an opportunity right now. And um, I think our actual R&D will probably remain in Israel and Jerusalem, but uh, we definitely see uh, in parallel to customer demand, opening up an office in the United States on the Northeast. Uh, I can't tell you for sure we'll be in Boston, but um, it's definitely in our plans and uh, it will go forward as we see that we actually have the customers to support the office so we can support them in parallel. Natan, would you care to share a little bit about Tulip's globalization strategy? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I echo uh, folks who said, you know, you got to stay close to the customer. That, that's that been the story of, of Tulip, you know, was born basically with a customer. And I think um, it's key to, to, you know, to build the right uh, products. And uh, yeah, we're, we're headquartered here in Somerville and have every intention to stay. But uh, we always gravitated towards Europe because it was uh, a bit ahead of the curve and in a different fashion, I'd say, from uh, the U.S. on its adoption of uh, what we call generally, you know, Industry 4.0 uh, uh, technology and I think more important, a mindset. So kind of uh, integrating it into process. And, and, you know, Western economies have the uh, almost, uh, you know, the highest need. And that's not to say that in Asia-Pacific, you know, you could have instances of uh, Western uh, manufacturing or operations with the multinationals there, for example. So we, you know, we recognize that and focus on that. So we have a company in Germany. We're starting another one um, in Hungary, which is like a very interesting um, manufacturing powerhouse in Europe and uh, lots of great engineering talent um, and, and, and good location to support. Uh, we're also starting operations in Japan and, and, and in China. And of course, China, you have to think about it through uh, the lens of how do you operate uh, cloud and network environments, which we're very cognizant of um, you know the sensitivities around that but it's a, it's a huge market and you know when a, a multinational pharmaceutical company needs to operate in a you know factory uh, somewhere in china then you know we you know we we have to be able to support them and uh i think in that sense um again interesting time because uh, you know for the first time we're getting to the point that true cloud environments drive the architectures and that means you can actually log into your factory remotely, see all your sites and all that kind of stuff. It's becoming a reality. And uh, you still need the people on the ground to go and interact with customers. So that, that's more or less how we, how we see it. Um, and, and by the way, partners play a huge part in that. Awesome. So we're going to move to the trailblazing technology solutions that you all represent because, you know, no, no discussion of Industry 4.0 can be without a technology discussion. I just really uh, regret uh, I would have regretted starting there, but I want to have a quick discussion on that now. So my question to each of you is going to be around that. There are many Industry 4.0 candidates, and they may not all revolutionize uh, the factory or the shop floor or manufacturing all alone. 
and we have talked about the complexities. Having said all of that, I'm going to list off some. You feel free to list off others. What are the most important two, three technologies that will change this next decade? Any kind of advanced machines, you're all involved with those. Robotics, we haven't talked to, but robotics is, is very much a part of the manufacturing debate. 3D printing, we have a pioneer here in the room. Uh, that space is moving fast. They're printing wood here with desktop uh, metal, which was printing metal. Now they're printing wood. They're printing all kinds of stuff. We're printing medical devices. We're actually printing organs. Now, um, and that has a lot of consequences for, uh, uh, for location. Industrial tools, Stanley Beck and Decker, I'm assuming you guys, I, I wanted to have it here, but I've been using your tools all weekend, right? And the, these tools uh, don't get lost anymore because, uh, you know, especially on aircraft and other places where these maintenance tools, you know, need to be accounted for. That's a massive trend. Uh, 60O space, sensory network sensors are everywhere. We were talking about IoT over the last decade, but suddenly IoT arrived and 5G arrived in many countries. Uh, Enormous consequences. Machine learning, we have, you know, both Tulip and Razor Labs and, and perhaps also virtual visual factories developing really uh, major solutions in, in that regard. And then you have the big AI, right? The, the holy grail of AI. Uh, Carl, um, let's kick it off with you. What are the technologies that are highest on your radar right now and that will have the biggest impact on this decade? Um, certainly for us, um, being a tool company mostly, um, we, we have done a lot more in, the, in recent times regarding um, integrating and connecting our products. Um, so being able to um, get data coming from our, um, our tools um, that are, are utilized um, in general um, in the B2B context. Um, then secondly, um, when we look at um, you know, some of our business units regarding tracing, Right. You mentioned tracing tools, but then we're also tracing assets um, through some of our businesses as well um, in the healthcare space in particular. Um, and, um, and then I, I think finally, you know, we're also diving into uh, a realm where we're looking at digital services as well to in the B2B context as well. Again, um, in providing solutions um, where manufacturers can become more efficient um, in what they do. And we have a number of those solutions that will be coming forward in, in the next year or so. Uh, Lior, what's your take on the next technologies? Well, I think I'll start with something that's obvious. I think cloud is going to rule the the direction as far as uh, definitely as far as software is concerned. So the challenge is going to be getting something on the ground that is able to connect to the to the uh, machines, and then something which is going to be up in the cloud, which is where the you know the where the wisdom is going to be. And there, the second technology, which I think is, uh, I mean, it's a group of technology, but I would tie. AI, artificial intelligence, as well as uh, uh, deep learning, machine learning into one big group of technologies, which are going to be extremely influential. But Lior, as you said on Augmented Podcast yesterday, sometimes you actually get too much data. So there is actually a way that people might digitize too fast. Absolutely. Because if you can't control Absolutely. your data, what good is data that you don't understand or, or have no way to, to interpret? Exactly. And that goes back to what I was saying before. It's about strategy. So it's not going to be one solution fits all. I think one of the key things that manufacturers need to do is to say, well, how does technology fits within my strategy? And that's a strategic decision. And if I need just to, if I have just 10 more seconds, I would say the real challenge is going to be the decision to go with either flexibility in manufacturing or efficiency. So 3D printer and printing is on the one end of this. And and uh, you know and and efficiency on fast growing machines is going to be on the other hand. And any any manufacturer will need to make a decision where they want to be. Nathan, what about you? I mean, there's many ways to answer this question. You have your leg in two startups. I'll, I'll be brief. It's it's uh, and I'm obviously very biased. So definitely, think uh, 3D printing is going to change the game, mostly on uh, enabling faster um, iterations. Uh, uh, for uh, product is product design and the the link between design for manufacturing and manufacturability, and we'll start seeing more three D printing use in end parts. We're already seeing it. It's a real thing. It's a mark, you know, for a market of one, being able to get really custom parts that uh, fit you. Usually, it goes with the body, like you know, glasses and ear pieces and uh, dentistry things like that. 
And on the operational side with my Tulip hat on, uh, I, I just think no code is, you know, true no code for operation is going to be fundamental because the world doesn't have so enough software engineers anyway. And even less of them of the availability is uh, coming into uh, the, the wonderful world of operations for all sorts of reasons that we all need to work on, including the bad reputation of like, uh, you know, it's, it's a dirty, not sophisticated environment. And we all know that's not really the case. Uh, so for that, you know, we're working on uh, building the best uh, no-code uh, engine out there uh, to support uh, operations. Awesome. Uh, we're going to have to speed up a little bit. Michael, uh, quick take. What, what, what other technologies on the horizon? Can you just be a little specific? Because I know you, know, you operate deep, deep in the deep of, of deep tech, <laughs> but uh, give us some specifics. So specifics. So you have AI, which is a buzzword that exists like since the 50s. And classical or old-fashioned algorithms are what everyone knows as machine learning. But the problem with machine learning is that it doesn't have the complexity or it doesn't have the capability to capture the complexity of the vast majority of uh, manufacturing machines because they have, as everyone here said, seas of data, oceans of data. And for machine learning, there is actually a, such a thing as too much data. And that's where we come with deep learning where there isn't such a thing as too much data. And uh, specifically deep reinforcement learning gives you the ability to optimize any KPI that you want with superhuman strategies. So you can actually have real-time insights on uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, spin the valve here, uh, push the button there, do this and that in order to increase throughput, uh, reduce malfunctions, reduce uh, pollutions, increase efficiency. And that's the, the key things that you can do now and you couldn't do five years ago. Perfect. And if, if you guys want uh, a little bit more of an in-depth on reinforcement learning and manufacturing, listen to, to Michael's podcast on Augmented. Michael Tomasi, uh, how do you see this uh, technology game? I, I mean, you're, you're, you have kind of one leg in true manufacturing, one leg in you know, making the region more advanced. How do you balance that and which, which technology would you vote for for the decade? Well, I think a couple of things. It's, it's the ability to integrate automation and robotics to enhance your processes internally. It's the data analytics piece for generating data, but like it was mentioned, too much data. How do you take that and use it effectively to get information back to your team to make better decisions? And software packages. We, we have a program in qualities that we purchased recently. And how do we take that and, and, and actually make exponential advancements in our ability to process our work? Got it. And uh, uh, Mark, what is uh, your take on this? Uh, say, very simply, I'm going to say sensors. Uh, everything everybody said is very important, but they all rely on data, and uh, the data comes from the sensors in the field. And, uh, to me, uh, I'm biased because that's our company, but uh, the data coming in is very important, and that's the sensors we'll give you. Do you have any observations so now that you've heard you know, your, your team and, and, and our team? What, uh, what are your, uh, any reflections? Yeah, so uh, thank you, Tron, and thank you, everybody, you know, for this very, very interesting discussion. I think that I just wanted to add um, a couple of words, uh, basically, I think, addressing much of everybody has said. Um, just uh, as, a, as a side note, before this position, my prior position in Israel was heading the export control agency in Israel. So I was actually dealing, you know, with the specific issues of sensitivities in trading um, in, in, in more sensitive products between countries. And I think that one of the uh, things that has become even stronger in my perception of doing business internationally, especially as we move forward and become more advanced with uh, uh, better abilities is really uh, who we partner with. Uh, because I think that partnership is key while being present in a specific market and having boots on the ground. And I think that the Israeli companies um, mentioned the fact that they acknowledge it, that they cannot do business remotely, completely remotely. They have to be present. And I think that this is one thing that, you know, out of our office, we certainly encourage the companies to come in and do, and that's part of the reason for this summit seminar. At the same time, I do want to say also to the larger companies, there is really no substitute to partnering and partnership. And I think that in the without going into politics, 
the reality um, of the current situation is that you really, really need to be very careful uh, in picking your partner, not just from a technological perspective or from other business perspectives, but from kind of a broader perspective of, you know, the different um, processes that the, or the directions that the, that the world is heading. And I think in that respect, I just want to reiterate and kind of to share with everybody the strong partnership that we as the State of Israel enjoy with the United States, being very close partners and having many, many uh, strong infrastructure between us that allow uh, business to thrive, even in a slightly more sensitive uh, situations or environments. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of my two cents and I do want to encourage, you know, everybody to continue engaging, um, in these types uh, of partnerships. And again, from our end, um, we are very happy to help with, with this, help facilitate, help, help provide additional information to anybody, um, who's interested. Great. Mark, any, any thoughts on partnering after this discussion? Um, we are looking for partners, and uh, I think uh, having our feet on the ground is very important. Uh, it's the personal connections. I think uh, I think that was one of the common themes that came out of today. All right, that was sixty years space. Michael Tomasi, Acurans, and the AMC Network here in, in Massachusetts. Yeah, take advantage of the resources here. There's, there's grant money. There's the M two I two Manufacturing USA Institutes. Uh, do some learning, reach out, and connect. And um, that we can establish partnerships. Leo from Visual Factories. I'd like to see this kind of forum in a room in Boston within the next uh, uh, six to 12 months uh, and us communicating directly. Talk to Mr. COVID. Talk to Mr. COVID. So, uh, Michael Solta, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a pleasure. And uh, basically, we are looking for partners mainly in three sectors, continuous manufacturing, natural resources, and utilities. That's what we'll be uh, looking for. And yeah, having boots on the ground is currently in our plans, uh, literally in these months. Wonderful. Natan, any last observation? That I'm not alone. That uh, there's a lot of great folks, uh, our, our contemporaries and... Um, there's a great ecosystem in the making, and I think uh, we'd be happy to host people in our uh, HQ of Boston whenever the time is right. Um, someone can write this down, catch this check down, down, down the road sometime. Pizza uh, or, you know, lobsters if we get here. On we uh, will take that <laughs> up. Pizza with we'll, lobster, you know. Pizza with pizza lobster and, and whatever suitable drinks. Yeah. Carl, yeah. what do you what do you think of this? Uh, since I was so rude initially, uh, I'm going to give you the last word, apart from my word, of course, because I want to say <laughs> the absolute last word. So anyway, thank you. And please, uh, what's your last observation? No, this has been an energetic conversation that has validated something that we have believed in at, at Steiner Back and Decker in our Industry 4.0 program, in that there's an importance and actually it's quite essential to have a robust partner ecosystem. You cannot do it alone. No manufacturer can do all of this on their own. And we need um, partners, both, both in the public sector as well as in the private sector, um, to help us along the way. All right. So from my end, it just remains to, to thank all of the panelists and also to say that and thank our co-host uh, from the Israeli Economic Commission uh, to say that, you know, from our organizing uh, committee here, Carl and myself, representing the Advanced Manufacturing Hub New England, which really is a new organization, and it was established you know, under the auspices of the World Economic Forum as an idea to say, you know, uh, the world of industry isn't just about, and pardon my French here, not, it's not just about the Stanley Black and Deckers. And, and to Carl's point, you know, we all need each other, whether we are smaller, newer, more emergent, or we are traditional players, uh, you know, whatever size we have, or we are governments, you know, th this is a multi-stakeholder, multi-region type of process. And it is a community, like Natan said. So the Advanced Manufacturing Hub of New England aims to be not just regionally, uh, and even just collaborating across states in the U.S. sometimes is actually challenging, right? Because many of these Structures are set up statewide and, and, and with state borders. 
So anyway, to then do this globally has a number of benefits, but also it is complex. So we would just invite you to keep supporting us and the charter that we have, which really is to just be a network that boosts both the internal regional struggles and strides and boosts the international and global capabilities. And there are hubs in 12 other regions around the world. And we attend Israel, by the way, is not one such hub. So I have been especially encouraged by the, our conversation here. And hopefully we can follow up and get you plugged into this uh, AM network. But let's uh, you know, leave that aside for a second. And I just wanted to thank all of the attendees uh, for you showing up. Listen Please suggest other events that we should hold. And thank you very much for your attention Israel today. Israel New England on Industry 4.0. Our guests were a mix of top Israeli startups and advanced manufacturers from New England. In this conversation, we talked about Industry 4.0, the daunting challenges, the changing context, the tech solutions, partnering, and what factory managers need to know. My takeaway is that industrial tech is about to transform the manufacturing landscape in ways that we can only still try to imagine. The process will be quicker than expected, but change will be uneven across factories, regions, and countries. It will all depend on how well we implement technology, prepare the workforce, and understand the macro impact of many incremental changes that altogether will represent a systemic shift. Exciting and accelerating times ahead. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like to listen to individual episodes featuring each of the guests of this webinar, notably episode 32, Visualizing Factories, with guest Lior Zadikavio from Visual Factories. Episode 27, um, Industry 4.0 Tools, with Carl B. March from Stanley Black & Decker. Or episode 19, Machine Learning in Manufacturing, with Michael Zolotov from Razor Labs or episode 25, Industrial Tracking, with Mark Goldfarb from 60 of Space, uh, or episode 26, Manufacturing in Massachusetts, with Michael Tomasi, CEO of Accurate. Augmented, upskilling the workforce for Industry 4.0 frontline operations.